to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, another part two talking about some accuracy studies. We'll talk about some uh, some more palms here with uh, with our guests rejoining from a couple weeks ago. Excited to get into that. Yeah, uh, same here. I mean, we had so much in the last episode when we had our guests on talking about the palm print black box study that we knew we would have a little bit of follow-up uh, to get into some really specific examples. Sometimes those episodes just go so long, we know we've got to break it up into a two-parter. Well, and luckily they br- broke up the topic into two papers, so we can just kind of cover this in the second paper. They did make it easier for us. All right, so first up, want to uh, say thank you again to all of our patrons on patreon.com slash podcast. And this week, a big thanks to Viv, uh, who's joined uh, the group in uh, contributing to our little show. No, oh, thank you very much, Viv. Welcome aboard. And then second up, uh, we got to do another anagram. So again, try try to, to find you know, words that are related to the topic of the show. Uh, so this week is unsent violin. Uh, spell unsent? Yep. So did you send that stringed instrument? No, it is an unsent violin. Oh, I had, <laughs> I had uh, S-C-E-N-T. Like. I don't know. Uh, U-N-S-E-N-T and then violin. Unsent violin. All right. Thank you, Eric. All right. So without further ado, let's welcome back in uh, our, our guests again to the show, uh, Heidi Eldridge and Christoph Champeau. Uh, thank you guys for joining us again. Hello. Happy to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. You know, I think last time we really didn't introduce you guys in the sense of where you guys are, uh, you know, for our listeners. You know, we just introduced you guys as authors of the paper, but it might be nice to get a little background on both of you, if, if you don't mind. You're building off also the introduction, uh, but our longstanding question of how did you, you know, end up in the world of fingerprints? You know, Heidi, can you uh, give us a little introduction of yourself and, and uh, an answer to that question? Sure. Yeah, I'll try to keep it under an hour. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm Heidi Eldridge, and um, I worked as a latent print examiner for about 11 years, uh, starting in 2005. I worked at a few different agencies, worked for a state agency, a local agency, and a sort of regional agency. So I was all over the place. Um, but in 2015, I moved to RTI International so that I could focus on research full time. So since then, I've been doing research on sort of foundational fingerprint issues, uh, as well as taking parts in committees and education and that kind of thing. Uh, my origin story uh, is actually kind of weird. <laughs> I started out, well, I started out as a theater major and then I went to get a PhD in biology. And during the course of working on that PhD in biology, I had sort of a life crisis saying, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and why am I doing this degree in the first place? Um, Because I didn't want to be a professor at the time. And so I ended up taking a terminal master's, which means that I finished a uh, master's project so that I could defend that and graduate with an MS degree in biology. And then I sort of said, okay, great. Now I have an MS in biology. What on earth can I do with that? And I started looking into different careers. And I remembered that way back at the end of eighth grade, before starting high school, I had gone to a sort of summer kids nerds camp where I (laughs) took a class in forensic science. And I had really enjoyed that. And I thought, huh, that's something I could do with the master's. So I started applying to forensic science agencies all over the country. And it took me about a year of applying before I got my first positive response, which happened to be in Oregon. So I moved out there and got started. And and were you looking specifically for fingerprints or was that where the opening was? So that's where they stuck you? Oh, no, not even that. When I started, um, I started with Oregon State Police. And at that time, at least their philosophy was that if you want to learn to be a forensic scientist, you will learn that in controlled substances. So I started in controlled substances and I was doing that for um, a couple of years before they had an opening in the latent print unit. And they said, would you be interested in cross training? And I said, would I? I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure I'm into this whole squiggly lines thing. Um, but I didn't want to be doing controlled substances forever. It wasn't exciting me all that much. And there was sort of a little bit of a stigma about like, that's the place you don't want to get stuck. Um, so I was like, well, it's a way out of control substances. So I'll try it. Um, and then I kind of fell in love with it. So the rest is history. 
All right. And Christoph, a little background for yourself and your story. Yes. So my my background is as follows. I, I did my master's degree at the University of Lausanne uh, under the guidance of Pierre Margot. And at that time, uh, a few of us were offered the possibility to continue for a PhD. I had no, I was not much interested in fingerprints or other forensic topics. In fact, I was interested by every forensic topics. Uh, I had the chance to sit in the office of Pierre for 10 minutes and I walked out of his office thinking that fingerprints was the only thing I wanted to do on earth. It's mainly because it was the exact time where the UK was investigating the origin of a 16-point standard. And based after this, it transpired that uh, contrary to what we thought, uh, the statistical basis for this number was quite shaky. Uh, so I decided to investigate the statistical aspect of fingerprints, and that was my PhD. And since then, I never stopped. So I've been in that aquarium for 1990. Amazing. What was it about fingerprints that just drew you in? It's, it seems like so many other people, they have to start comparing fingerprints before they get sucked into it. Was that it or was it some other portion, like some other aspect? No, the, the, the comparison came later. What took me in the field is the combination of two mentors, Pierre Margot on one hand, uh, who was my, my professor of forensic science, and uh, Ian Evett on the other, who was the one of the investigator of the source of a 16-point review. And he right. came to Lausanne to look for the original paper, which in fact they found in our library, uh, this famous paper by Bertillon, which was lost uh, in a fax at uh, in London, but we had the entire copy. And uh, and it was the combination of these two great minds that convinced me that that I should do more research in this area, that there is something to discover. Uh, and there is much, the comparison came later. Uh, so I, I still do uh, case work on, on a limited basis, not full time, but I enjoy doing case work a lot as well. And at that point, there was really zero research on examiner right. performance. It, it was just virgin fields, really, uh, open to, to research. Oh, at that point, like most forensic fields, um, uh, I mean, talking about the traditional fields, uh, in 1990, all these fields were complete new territory for research purposes. So we were a group of PhD students, the first group under Pierre Margot's guidance, and we had the feeling, naively, that everything could be made. And uh, that, that was a wonderful time. That's fantastic. All right. So let's get into the paper itself. Uh, so this is out of Forensic Science International, published earlier this year, 21, uh, Mindset, How Bias Leads to Errors in Friction-Rich Comparisons, Heidi Eldridge, Marco Dodano, and Christophe Champeau. So first off, for anyone listening, I would highly encourage you guys to uh, to get a copy of the paper uh, as we go through. And we'll put links. We'll put links to, yep. to it as well since it's open source. There's a lot There's a lot of examples that we're going to be talking through, and it'll definitely help to look at the pictures while while we uh, discuss you know, some of these instances of, uh, of errors that different examiners made. All right, Glenn, uh, why don't you start us off? Sure. So the paper starts off with a definition of mindset. And that mindset is this term that's used to describe, it's, it's a kind of confirmation bias that when you start your examination, you may have an immediate internal thought or internal, I don't, I wouldn't say full decision, but you've got some sense of maybe orientation or location or where to look for this latent print, that you come to some initial assessment about that. And the mindset part is that once you form that initial opinion, it can be really difficult to break, especially if it's incorrect. And that the authors explore how this assessment that can be sometimes very efficient and very helpful for reaching your conclusions or finding a latent print can sometimes also be to your detriment because once you get sucked into that tunnel, it's very difficult to break out of that. So the authors discuss what that concept of mindset is and how it applies to various different cases. 
Is that a fair assessment of mindset, Heidi? And, you know, what you guys were thinking and trying to describe that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's it in a nutshell. And the part that's really insidious about it is that not only do you form these opinions, but you're encouraged to do so. I mean, it's actually part of our process, right? It's, you know, look at the image and figure out what you can about it and use that to target your search. Yeah, it makes you an efficient examiner, essentially. Right. So this mindset is is explored here uh, as it affects both the the factors that lead to an erroneous identification and the factors that lead to an erroneous exclusion. So why don't we start with the erroneous identification side? What, like, how would you guys describe the um, how this mindset you know leads examiners down this path towards an erroneous ID? I think one factor that comes into play is that during comparison you have to account or potentially explain potential differences observed between the mark and the print. And even though during analysis you're encouraged to assess the extent of expected differences on the on the correct source, when you're engaged into the comparison and because the fact that you are doing side by side, your brain is trying to resolve differences. And by trying to resolve these differences, it's very hard to detect when you cross the boundaries when your explanation is too far away from your initial set tolerances. And uh, that's what I noticed in my own practice is that you'd start to go down that road, that difficult tunnel, when you explain away every differences on the ground of perceived lack of quality, uh, expected distortion, which uh, was partially seen during analysis may maybe not to the extent you try to suggest at the time of comparison and when everything is explained away you start to concentrate on the what corresponds or what could be perceived as in correspondence and and gradually uh, the the proposition that it's coming from the same source cannot be uh, challenged anymore in your mind. And that's the mindset. It's what I've always referred to as storytelling. You know, when when you find yourself making up these increasingly fantastical stories to explain how that difference could have been not a difference uh, is when you're kind of stuck. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're, you guys are describing is that the identification decision is formed fairly quickly in the mind. And then everything else is really a post-justification of that decision the problem is it's not just a justification, but it's a focus on the characteristics that maybe are similar and ignoring or diminishing those that are dissimilar. Is that is that fair? Yes. And I think we're further handicapped by kind of the examples we see in classes or the examples we see in our training or our previous casework, because we've all read an article or been in a class or something where somebody has shown us um, you know, the the shocking false ID that makes us say, oh, I'm never going to do that. And we pull back way back. We've also, on the other hand, we've seen the shocking misses where it's like, well, you know, I would have found it. I would have dug through the weeds. Uh, I would have put in the work. And so I think we always have this conflicting desire in the back of our brain to not be the person who misses it and not to be the person who makes the wrong ID. And those can feed into the stories you're already telling yourself. May I just add one element, which is about the concept of explaining away differences when I do, or on, when people explain differences on grounds of distortion, for example, they tend to, as soon as they have resolved it, is it is as if it never existed. So people mm. resolve differences, and and I use the term resolving on purpose because it's as if they have solved a puzzle, and and then it means that the difference the difference does not exist anymore, and they can concentrate on what corresponds. What we are missing is that these differences exist, still are there, and should be weighed into the comparison outcome. The, the mindset is that when, when you resolve the differences and in the brain of the examiner is as if it never existed because you resolved them, and then they have less weight in your decision outcome and everything is focused on the correspondences. And that's what I noticed, that, that, that that's what we, we observe um, in the sort of anatomy of the error. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. It immediately makes, you know, cast my mind back to, you know, in history to the previous definitions of identification and exclusion. That identification 
you know, were all these similarities without an unexplained difference, essentially meaning that you must find an explanation for each difference. Uh, and then an exclusion, not maybe literally, but kind of by extension would be where there is an unexplained difference, uh, where the explanation was the emphasis instead of Christoph, like you're saying, weighting each difference into that final conclusion. One of the things I wanted to ask Christoph on, on this line of uh, dismissing differences due to distortion. So I'm going to make a reference back to a previous episode. So for listeners of the show, uh, back in November 2019, we reviewed a paper on conflict resolution from Christoph and an author by the name of Isabel Montani. And we referred to it as the Montani method. And one of the things I really liked about that paper is it, it separates this concept into uh, uh, focusing very clearly on whether or not the differences are due to what we'll call distortion, which would be the numerator of the likelihood ratio, or differences are due to the specificity or discriminability, which is the denominator of the likelihood ratio. So as a quick recap, it focuses the, the, the conflict between two various areas. Are they due to distortional issues or are they due to which features and how discriminating they are? And the paper is pretty clear about when you have differences due to specificity or discriminability, then really the only way to resolve that is with empirical data. But one of the things that I come back to when talking about conflict resolution is when the differences are due to distortion, Christoph, what, what data besides the examiner's opinion of, well, that's just how I interpret this distortion, what data can you look towards or tool or how do you resolve differences of opinion that resolve around, well, that's a distortion. No, that's a discrepancy when you don't have any real underlying data to, to assist with that. Do you, do you get what I'm coming, coming from? Yes. If you can measure distortion, and there is ways to measure distortion, uh, you can see uh, the extent of, of physical or elastic distortion you had to accommodate to fit one mark on top of the print. And that could be give you some, some indication that you are in the extreme area or not when it comes to distortion. Most examiners won't have access to that type of tools. And it means that it, it may quite quickly come down to a difference of opinion between two experts. And the, the, a, a fantastic example of it is, uh, is the famous 66 degree shift of one minutia in, in the comparison between the mark and the print from Shirley McKee. One expert saying, well, this 66 degree is absolutely impossible uh, on the ground of distortion. Another expert saying, yes, it is, it is completely these of things you can expect due to, to the viability or elasticity of the skin. And until we have a better way to measure distortion, we run the risk to end up these cases with a difference of opinion, which is not a good way to resolve potential conflicts. Now, I think what is important is transparency, as always. So as long as we have the full annotation in analysis and the full annotation in comparison, quite often, and it's what I use for my cases, when you have, say, 30% of your annotation that has been tweaked and shifted and moved around to make them fit with the print, uh, compared to what you initially have set on the mark, I think there is a good red alarm that should be triggered. And when there is a good red alarm, it should not mean that it has to be resolved by saying it does not exist, but it needs to be fully considered in the assessment. Uh, yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've discussed similar things before with one of the FBI noblest papers, uh, adjustments to examiner's markings during the comparison phase. Do you, ha do you have some sense of how much adjustment is too much during the comparison phase? And you threw out 30%, but do, do you have a sense of what's too much? I think it's something that Heidi and myself have been talking in, in various forum. At the moment, we don't have it. I don't think we have any data on what is an acceptable level of discrepancy, so to speak, between analysis and comparison. But, uh, the 30% was a, was a, a ratio which seems reasonable to us that 
that you should, you should a red flag should be up when you have 30% of your minutia that is are in addition to what you have seen in analysis or if you have 30% of the annotated points that needed to be shifted in order to make them fit so to speak that seems the 30% seems a good rule of thumb for an alarm to to be up but i i'm not aware of any structured data that could back that up at the moment and that does seem roughly in the line with the paper glenn mentioned the, the white box paper on changes in minutia markup and where there is this happy zone you if you don't change enough then there's a higher risk of erroneous exclusion but if you change too much then there's a higher risk of erroneous id and uh, I don't have the paper in front of me, but if I'm remembering correctly, you know, the, there were specific samples where it was definitely below that 30% level of minutia that were adjusted. Oh, yeah. Where, where it fit into that examiners made a correct identification and not a, uh, an erroneous exclusion, which were much down in like the 5% kind of level. Uh, unfortunately, there was only one erroneous ID in that paper, and it was like 100% change. So it's, <laughs> it's tough to judge just from that data where that line should be but under that 30 percent does seem to fit in with at least that paper all right so while we're talking through the the these erroneous ids let's actually talk about a couple of the examples you guys put into the paper so for anyone following along with I'd start at figure one always a good place to start <laughs> uh, this is a an erroneous identification the latent print you guys uh, developed as part of the study, and the known was obtained from a, uh, a database search. Is, is that correct? That's right. And uh, so we don't have the known here that generated the erroneous ID. Uh, we're just looking at the latent print. But, well, Heidi, let me, let me turn it over to you. Why don't you kind of describe the what this latent print looks like and what area of the print specifically the examiner used to base their erroneous ID? Right. So this, this was really interesting because, as we note in the paper, it was a black box study. Nobody was required to make any annotations or any notes, but a lot of people did. And this person gave us a fair bit of information to work with that was really interesting because if you're following along at home and looking at the image, you'll notice that there's this odd polygon at the top of the image that's marked out in a green line. Um, and that was the examiner's polygon. We did not draw that. The examiner did. And they put in their written notes that they saw this as being two different palm impressions from two different sources and that they only made the ID to what was inside the green line. The reason that's so interesting to me is that if you look at the quality of what's inside the green line and the quality of what's outside the green line, it's all pretty awful. But the stuff inside the green line is like exponentially worse. So the fact that they saw these... It looks like it might be color reversed. Mm, it does. I mean, it's definitely different than the rest of the print, but it, the ridges kind of flow through. So it's... I mean, I get, I get the second impression maybe on the color difference, but on the ridge flow and overall shape, it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of movement going on there. I mean, this, this is an ugly impression with a lot of bad, <laughs> but the fact that you see clear differences, and then they noted that they saw clear differences in the area outside the green line. But as, as Christoph was talking before about explaining things away, they explained all of that away as saying, well, that's a different impression. So I'm only concerned with the stuff inside the green line. But again, you look at the stuff inside the green line and it's like awful. I mean, it's way worse than the stuff outside the green line. So to throw away the stuff that's relatively clear and focus on the stuff that's really terrible. Um, and I, I think we mentioned elsewhere in the paper that of all of the people who analyzed this mark and, and annotated it, only one other person marked one minutia inside of that green line and yeah. they marked it at low confidence. But somebody was willing to hang their whole hat on an individualization based just on this information in here. I mean, there's 12 minutia they've marked inside this green polygon. Yes. And um, and they marked them all with confidence. Oh, that wasn't you, Eric, that did that? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, even looking at these 12, I mean, even I would only maybe mark <laughs> three. <laughs> I mean, but I might even ignore that whole area because there's just so much other good stuff sure. elsewhere. Sure. But, I mean, there's some creases. Like, the creases are better in that area yeah. than the minutiae. Yeah, you've got a great tic-tac-toe 
uh, shape in there. Yes, yes. And as far as the two impressions thing goes, um, I mean, I could just tell you because we made all of these, we know ground truth. I I can't say that there wasn't a a lift and reset kind of thing. If the person was gripping the item, they might have shifted their hand slightly. But all, all of the impressions in this study were intended to be single impressions. We weren't being tricky with overlays or anything like that. Where, where like half the print would match and the other half wouldn't. And exactly. Then you're tricking they, the people into making errors. Exactly. They were all natural touches. They just may have had distortion from the way the item was handled. So in the comments, they mention a uh, in the green area, a vestige and ridge crease as red flag. Yeah. Am I, where's the vestige? <laughs> yeah, I wondered about that too. I I don't see it. And I, I think they didn't mean red flag. I think they meant more anchor, but okay. I mean, uh, that's how I interpreted it. They meant that it was something they keyed on to, but sure. Cause why would a vestige be a red flag? It, there's nothing wrong with a vestige, but yeah, I don't see it either. Yeah. That's the problem with all of this, Heidi, isn't it? When you're, you're reading these narratives, you read these statements and, and as a researcher, I mean, it was what I always found fascinating when examiners, like you mentioned, you didn't tell them to put these things. They just put them there. But once you're reading them, it's almost like a diary and you yes. can't put it down. Yes. And it, it's absolutely fascinating <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to get that glimpse into someone's brain. Yeah. But at the same time, it's fascinating. It's a little scary, too, because they either see things you didn't that may or may not be there or they see things that you never would have considered or thought and then you wonder, is this person really doing casework? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it is mind boggling, uh, but so insightful as, as well, because it, these are real examiners. Yeah, no, it is funny because they're, they're essentially a, a character in my research story. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah, when you're reading a, a book, you, you want to relate to your characters and know what are their motivations and what are they thinking? Uh, There's that theater background. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard, it's hard <laughs> to crawl in there and try to understand where they're coming from, from a couple sentences. And, and without being too judgy either. I mean, you know, there's yeah. this, you don't want to bash someone for having these thoughts or sharing these thoughts, but we want to learn from them. Exactly. But it, it's so hard because, I mean, it, I hate to say it, but it really does show the subjective nature of fingerprint examinations. I mean, there's just no other way around it because you are seeing it through their eyes in a way that you never would have seen that impression. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. It's, it's, you know, sort of easy to Monday morning quarterback it or whatever, but at the same time, you're looking at going, somebody put this down and believed that, believed that it was worth sharing enough to take the time to, to document it. And how, you know, you just look at it going, how, how did that, how did that land in their head? I don't understand. And, and yet I'm sure you could open up one of my random cases and find some thoughts and go, was he high when he did this exam? Absolutely. And it's still miles better than not having anything at all, you know, to even uh, get this glimpse. Yeah, fair point. All right. So let's look at the second one that was an erroneous identification. So then jump down to, to figure three. Yes. And a couple of the figures after that as well. This is in the interdigital area. And I mean, the, the point here is, is less comparing a, a poor quality area, but it seems to be more based, um, expanding the tolerance of how minutia oriented with each other can, um, you know, can back up the identification. Correct. This, I mean, this is sort of the classic storytelling that the amount of distortion that would have to be present to make these relationships consistent between the two images um, is not borne out by what we see at all. I mean, you can only see the unknown here, but you can, you can tell that it's in pretty good shape. It's not severely distorted. And we can tell you, cause we've seen the exemplar that the exemplar was extremely clear and not distorted. And so you, you look at the relationships of these minutiae to one another, especially at, at A and B, where those arrows are pointing out. And you think for those to have moved the way they would have had to have moved to be true correspondences, we would be looking at something remarkably distorted. Yeah. And Glenn, I'm sure you've seen the same, same kind of thing in your classes, but in uh, there's one example in particular, in one of my classes that would tend to produce erroneous ID where See examiners doing this exact same thing. The the ridge count between two points is the same, but that distance, right, right, is changing. And it's not just the distance; it's not the distance across the ridges, like an accordion, because that that can change, and the ridge count's still the same. But it's the distance along the ridge that 
it just seems that examiners don't consider that as much where, especially for two points so close together, there's only so far you can push the ridges along, should push two points away from each other when they're you know, basically along the same ridge line. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I'd say it this way. When examiners make that error, they didn't consider that that distance issue, that they were looking at the ridge count or just the presence of the feature. The nice thing about the graphic in this paper is when you remove the image of the, the latent print and just see the minutia, almost like a constellation, you can see those differences a little bit sharper. You can, you know, it, it's easier to detect, oh, those... Uh, those angles, those distances that, you know, they're, they're way off because you're not distracted by the friction ridge image. And then the, the following figure shows some of the distortion that Christoph was talking about, where you have metrics of distortion yeah. showing the warping of it. And when features start to move in and out of this measurement of tolerance that's available. Yes, if I may add here, you're absolutely right on, 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 on one of the key issue here is that people tend to misappreciate that tolerances does not behave the same way across ridges than along ridges. Yes. And it, 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 and then I think it's good to go back to, to Dave Ashbow's book, uh, where he's describing ridge units, although ridge units, uh, they are a good descriptor of what is going on along ridges. So along ridges, if you have, if you need three more ridge units to make the difference, between the mark and the print, there is a problem. But what I noticed, and I have been victim of this myself, is that we tend to look at the viability of cross ridges along, along ridges the same way. And we should not. It's, it's, it's two different things. And that may cause, I think, the misappreciation that we have here. I would say is even without the tool that you guys used, which is a great tool of measuring that, that distortion map, that would be uh, figure four for anyone looking at home. Even if you don't have that available, even just looking back, right? You finish your markup, go back and look at the points. If you look at the two points marked as B, you can see in the latent, the left one is higher and in the known, the right one's higher. And that kind of difference should get you to start over and, and you know, reevaluate your decision if you see something like that. All right, so let's move on to the erroneous exclusion samples. Uh, so Heidi and Christoph, what were you guys say is how is mindset different for erroneous exclusions than erroneous IDs? For erroneous exclusions, I think it's much more analysis based. You know, for the erroneous IDs, it's more of a comparison issue where you've started looking at them side by side and you see something you think you like and you just can't let go of it. Uh, the erroneous exclusions seem to come more from the analysis where you've thought about the orientation, you've thought about the anatomical source. And again, you're not willing to give up on that information. And so you just plain don't look in the place where you're supposed to look or you're looking upside down. Yeah. And, and, and the mindset issue is not, is it encapsulate a question of, of values, the values you attach to erroneous exclusion compared to erroneous identification being probably different it means that the mindset and the, the power and the mindset in one or the other might be different as well. So we are, de depending on workload and perceived gravity of the case, uh, you may, you may find absolutely acceptable to miss, to miss something. Hence, you're happy to, to move on and you run the risk, of course, of missing it. And that, that is due to, to your, your core value when it comes to the risk and benefit of missing. A potential association for the wrong identification it plays exactly the same way but with different values i think the, the force of the mindset is different when whether you look at potential wrong exclusion or whether you look at potential wrong identification interesting i i love this list of questions that you guys have here at the beginning of the article that relates to the erroneous exclusions should the examiner consider the right or left hand first and uh, is it from the palm, a finger, a joint, and in the palm? Is it thin or hypothene or interdigital area? But then also, you know, it should be kept in mind that all these decisions are susceptible error and may need to be revisited. And it's, I think, as we go through the examples, we'll see that it's that revisiting that uh, is often the problem that can lead to these erroneous exclusions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, those determinations are great for helping you target your search and, and be more efficient. But if you don't find it, 
then maybe you should cycle back and have another look. And is that a recommendation or a standard that you know gets developed that you must, if you don't find it, you must go back to the beginning and reconsider? I mean, is that something we can recommend? I, we do at the end of the paper. <laughs> I mean, yep. I'd certainly call it a best practice. All right. So then the the first example here on the erroneous exclusions, um, you looked at figure six is the um, is the the image as it was presented to the examiners in the study. And that is a, a smaller uh, latent print taken from a, a larger latent print uh, that includes you know, basically the whole, you know, half the hand, uh, which would have been much easier, obviously. But you know, just initial impression of this Im- impression is no core, no delta, no obvious location or orientation. I mean, heck, it I, I could even squint hard enough to make it look like a finger. Uh, you're not a, not surprised that there's a that someone would miss where to look for this one, and you know, essentially they would have to look throughout the entire palm for quite a while until they came to the correct area. Yeah, that's fair. Heidi, what what led the examiner in this sample to to their erroneous exclusion? So we don't know exactly. <laughs> we can't crawl inside their head. But um, the fact that they annotated only in one area, which is in this thinner area that's shown in figure five, they actually marked out minutiae that they saw there. So we know that they were considering things in that area. Um, the other piece of information we have is shown all the way down in figure nine, where we have this sort of heat map of the amount of time that they spent looking in each area. And we can see that they spent most of their time right where their annotations occur in that dark red area. So it's from those two pieces of information, it's pretty evident that they honed in on this area and spent a lot of time trying to make it work. Um, We don't have any data that can tell us what they were thinking at that time, you know, did, did they look at that and then just say, okay, forget it, I'm done. Or did they glance other places quickly and just discount them immediately? You know, we don't really know that, but we do know that they felt that this was a place that was similar enough that it was worth their attention and worth their annotation for a while. And that they ultimately did not settle on any other area. Figure nine really stood out to me. And this reminds me of, again, something that we saw in the, the FBI noblest studies as well. This heat map is, is fantastic because like you said, they spent about what was it, about eight minutes or so in the thinner area, which was the most amount of time. They spent about two minutes in the funnel region of the hypothenar and then about a minute in the thinner just above the carpal delta, which all of those are, are wrong areas because as you guys discussed, it's up in the interdigital. What strikes me about this is even if we had some sort of rule, such as you need to look at two or three target groups, and they clearly did, or at least they looked at two or three different possible places, possible different orientations, this might be someone who followed all the rules, but never was struck with the correct inspiration of where to look correctly for that. And maybe, maybe, we don't know, it could be a training thing, maybe they're just not good at palms, but at the same time, they never had the inspiration to look in the right place. This to me is the example that says the solution is technology, that even if you put all the rules here, if you put all these multiple target groups, multiple areas, make sure you look at multiple things. And the person did for multiple minutes in different areas, they're still going to get this one wrong because it never occurs to them. It really is in the interdigital region for whatever reason, it never occurs to them. Whereas technology could kind of point them out and go, Hey, take a look at this real fast. And I think it would pop up pretty quickly in there. Once, once you gave them that inspiration. It's true. And I mean, you can't, you can't accuse them of not putting in the effort. You can't accuse them of not making reasonable guesses. The places that they looked, you know, are curving about the right way. But there's a lot of territory to cover there, you know, and uh, it's easy to miss something. I had a very similar thing happen to me on that famous 2010 CTS test where I was one of the people that missed that one. And I had spent more time looking for that latent print than I probably would have in regular casework. I mean, I looked for that for two hours in lots of different places. And when I eventually missed it, 
because I, I didn't see the correspondence in the right location. When someone reviewed that case, they couldn't figure out how I missed it because it's so obvious and there's 20 some minutia there. They, they couldn't figure out. And the recommendation was, well, Glenn, you need to spend more time with this <laughs> or, you know, you need to look harder or, you know, not not be you know so susceptible to mindset and it was very frustrating for me because that review that uh, root cause analysis was completely unhelpful it never it, i i couldn't have have actually spent more time with it and i couldn't have looked at it any differently it never occurred to me to see it in the right place the inspiration never came and i don't know how you legislate or create inspiration to an examiner once they they don't think that they're in the or they're not looking in the right spot. Yeah, I mean, what would make you look there if you don't think it's the right place? Yes, and Glenn, I think you you touch really an important point that technology is one component which can take you out of a mindset. I mean, yeah. we have yeah. to think about ways to have man machine interaction, and the beauty of an AFIS search. With that palm is that it will allow you to get out of your mindset because it will, it will look at it from a different perspective. And I'm thinking every of these, every time we identify ways we get into the mindset, probably technology can, can give us ways acting as red flags or mechanism to take us out of it because yeah. our minds are so powerful. I mean, once we, I think all of us around this table have been victim of these mindsets to, to different degrees. And we all know how hard it is to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next sample here, uh, jump down to uh, figures 10, 11, and uh, 13. Uh, you can see the the samples for this erroneous exclusion. Again, another instance of the examiner looking in the wrong spot. But you know what? Looking at this, this latent print, you know, just by itself, my first instinct would have been the bottom of the palm, which is exactly what this examiner did, is where they started their search. Absolutely. Yeah. This is this is Ron Smith's class working against them. I mean, they did exactly, exactly. what they were supposed to do. Uh, that looks like the bottom of a, of a palm. Yeah. <laughs> and looking at figure 13, where you see in the larger context where this latent print was on the paper, and uh, figure 12 as to you know how the how the hand was holding the paper when that was left. I'm still confused as to how that specific area of the, I don't know, kind of just past the funnel area in the hype in the uh, hypothenar could have been laid down in that shape. It, it, it's, it's a little bit confusing. Uh, I mean, I get the edge of the paper creates one edge, but it's just such an unusual mm -hmm. shape and location to appear. Well, I think the hand was cupped a little bit too, which made the void much bigger than you would expect. Sure. Between the thener and the hypothenar. And again, this, this photo, figure 12 of the person holding the paper, this wasn't necessarily them creating this specific mark because right. they created several marks of the same sort of style. So it, it could have been uh, different. So my, my point is that the way that he's holding his hand may not be exactly as it was when this mark was laid down, but it gives you an idea of how he was generally holding the paper while making these marks, this series of marks. So Heidi, I think you you bring up a really important point about how he's holding the paper and it's cupping the hand. This is resonating with me right now because I have a, a case very similar to this where the hand is wrapped around a cylindrical object. And there are some really interesting differences uh, in this one uh, for its location and the case I'm working on right now. And we have to remember that when the hand takes on that cupped formation or that when it takes on that cupped position, we are comparing it to flat exemplars. And mm -hmm. we should expect huge differences between flat exemplars and the cupped position, which will change. It's all, it's like a tesseract almost of the hand <laughs> because it, it really changes the distance from the interdigital area to the bottom of the hand. That's not the same distance as it is when it, when it's flat. Right. And I, I think examiners have to keep that in mind that the how latents are being deposited really does impact the potential spaces differences and those clues that you all learn start to fall apart a little bit for a um, three-dimensional hand versus a flat hand yeah absolutely essentially those clues are to help you find it but if you don't find it those 
clues don't necessarily support that it's not there. Good point. Correct. Yes, exactly. Uh, Heidi, anything else on for this sample on what you know what it appears may have led to the uh, the error in this um, in this example? Yeah, I'm. I think it's pretty clear. You know, what we just covered is what led to the error. That that shape and just being convinced it was the bottom of the palm. But the reason this is one of my favorites, and I, I like to always give the examiner props here, is because I, I love that little cat whisker thing they marked out yeah. in, in the orange lines. Like they found a really cool feature. It was a great diagnostic feature and we know they were searching on it. And it turns out that it was actually there. Uh, well, not there, but where it belonged <laughs> up in the funnel area. Um, mm. And I just think that it's a really nice testament to first of all, the good practices of this examiner, but second, the power of the mindset that they had this amazing diagnostic piece of information that you would expect to leap off the page at you. And it would if they had been looking in the right place. You get cat whiskers next to a crease, kind of a wide angle. And looking throughout the print, if you'd come across that area in the, in the funnel, it should have jumped right out. Yeah. All right. So the next two examples of erroneous exclusions are, are more just kind of an initial mindset thing. And this really stood out to me. Um, these, these, the two notes that these uh, users put in hmm. for, uh, in the notes for the first one, 10 print shows a right palm latent to the left palm, immediate exclusion. <laughs> and uh, for the second one, an absolutely instantly visible quote, not him in capital letters. <laughs> and from the very beginning right when when i you know first did not even a class but just a lecture on erroneous exclusions you know one of the the kind of the top comments i made was don't immediately exclude and uh you can see here language that that really points to that an immediate instant exclusion and we're not even going to bother with any other work Yep. And I mean, with the, the number of erroneous exclusions in this study, which was uh, 552, if memory serves, one wonders how many of those could have been avoided if a comparison was actually done. You know, because I, I, I take this note as meaning this person didn't actually even compare it. They glanced at it and said, nope, and moved on. Would you say like a level one exclusion then? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe level half. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, a, a yeah pattern level difference. Mm-hmm. translated to a to the finger you know this is a left lip versus right lip nope done moving on yeah and in in both of these cases they were virtually upside down they're about 130 degrees off all right so moving on uh towards the end of the paper now uh, before we get into the recommendations that you guys made i want to ask is it overall do you think it's easier to change your mindset when you've made a bad id and then kind of get yourself out of that or when you've made a bad exclusion and you get yourself out of that Oh, I, I think it's much easier to get out of a mindset on the wrong exclusion side because we have it, it's it's easier to have a factual demonstration that you missed it when someone else or even yourself come back to it and you see the position that you have, should have seen, uh, and the it's much easier compared to the wrong association when you are down the mindset for a wrong association. Uh, it might then become a question of of opinions which are much more difficult to solve. Whereas in verification stage, on the wrong exclusion side, the verifier potentially will bring you the correct spot to look at, and then there is no dispute anymore. There is no room for dispute. But there is always room for dispute if there is a discrepancy uh, on the identification side between one examiner who called it an identification and the next examiner having some doubts on on it, either towards the exclusion or as a a question of sufficiency. But then it's much more difficult to find, to resolve the, the, the conflict between the two. You make a good point there. In fact, when we look at some famous cases, like, for example, Mayfield versus the McKee case, you know, in the Mayfield case, the FBI at first maintained their difference uh, and continued to say, no, no, this is an accurate identification. It wasn't until they were proposed with a different source, Dawood and Mayfield, that they recognized their error. It was at that point they were able to break their mindset, not before. In the McKee case, we were never proposed an alternative suspect. So we never did see a contraction from you know the Scottish Criminal Records Office that they did, in fact, make an error on that. Yes, I, you're absolutely right. And, and that's, in fact, 
we have a paper here where we had the chance to identify, uh, to discuss this mindset because we have the grand truth. Right. Absent of the grand truth. So in case work, you have much more opportunity to detect a mindset on the exclu- of the wrong exclusion side then you have opportunities to detect the mindset on the wrong association side. Yes. I, as a private contractor, I've been brought in to some agencies where they, you know, a verifier believes they detected an erroneous identification. And what often happens is that the examiners involved have difficulty admitting, oh, I might have made a mistake here. And so for whatever reason, it becomes a little more palatable when someone from the outside comes in and blindly and says, mm, no, I think that there is an erroneous ID here. And even then, when you engage with those examiners and try to pull out from them, it's very difficult for them to admit that they might have misinterpreted something. Again, without ground truth, it's very difficult, even in the face of multiple examiners coming back and saying, I don't agree with this or this is a problem or showing all the distortional issues that might be wrong with it they still have a very hard time admitting it probably because of the, our culture and stigma behind these sorts of errors. Yeah. It's very difficult to say, yes, I, I, I did. I made an erroneous ID in this case. Yes. And, and even with that, even if you have data or, or you, you do repeated experiments, like, like was done in fact, in, in the McKee case where um, through a series of prints, you try to, understand the sort of distortion that would be allowable and that distortion was was much more limited than the one observed on the mark Mm -hmm. there is always this this idea that the mark is so-called unique and i'm smiling when i'm saying this and and (laughs) has been left uh, under unpredictable and and specific circumstances and as soon as we 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 take that path and thinking that this mark is completely special in the way it was deposited that opened the door of all explanation to be accounted for any differences you observe. And that's the risk. That's the mindset. Absolutely right. Same thing in the Mayfield case. It became now three or four separate touches that allowed for gross differences between the two. Even before we get to that verification stage, it's also easier to change that mindset for erroneous exclusions just when the examiner is still doing their comparison and you can really see that in the situation where you put it away for the rest of the day and you come back the next morning and then just there it is, you somehow broke your mindset overnight and uh, allowed you to see it almost instantly on the next day. And I think every examiner has had that experience. Uh, And it may be because of the documentation, right? With an ID, you're typically documenting all these features out so the next day you're going back to that documentation without really starting fresh. But for an exclusion, if you're just not seeing it, there's not maybe a whole lot that you've documented showing that you've not found it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can kind of start fresh and then see it. Good point. Uh, at the end of the paper, you guys have a, a series of recommendations uh, on how to avoid this mindset. And uh, just want to ask you guys to to kind of talk through you know, how examiners and agencies uh, units might be able to implement some of these recommendations to you know, reduce the risk of both types of these errors. I'll acknowledge first off that we did not get that technology recommendation in here. And I think it probably should be about sort of case safest type things we were discussing earlier. But the recommendations that we do have here largely center around documentation, transparency, and culture. Uh, essentially, we can't catch these errors. We can't learn from these errors if we don't know how they occurred. So we're recommending that people be documenting essentially what they saw and and what assumptions they made while they were searching. And those decisions that you make during analysis that help you form your, your target search areas, those are assumptions. And we want to have those recorded so that when something goes wrong, we can see why you missed it. Did you think it was upside down? Did you think it was a finger when it was a palm? Similarly, we need to be having the reviews so that it can be caught in the first place. So we're also recommending um, additional verifications or blind verifications to have somebody else looking over the work. 
And at the end, we're asking for a cultural shift where, first of all, erroneous exclusions are taken seriously. They, we know that they're a, a lesser offense than an erroneous ID, but there are so many of them. And so many of them could be avoided that if we took a closer look at them, tried to deconstruct them, tried to find a way to avoid them, that's energy well spent as long as it's done in a non-punitive way so that people aren't feeling like they have to hide it so that they don't get in trouble. And then finally, we would really like to see clearer criteria for laboratories that specify what criteria you need to meet to reach an exclusion decision. Um, and, and again, to document why you reach that exclusion decision. And we haven't really spelled it out in this paper, but that's an allusion to some of those policies that already exist out there uh, about particular criteria you have to meet, such as anchors and target groups and that sort of thing, which we talked about on the last podcast. And then, of course, standardized training is always beneficial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to follow up with that, you know, highly encourage every agency out there to follow all these steps, really. But you know, especially when you're doing the verification and finding these errors to document them, because I mean, overall, I think there is a limit as to how many of these erroneous exclusions are you know permissible. I mean, if an, if an examiner is making like, you know, one one or two a year, maybe that's, you know, kind of a normal rate. If it's, you know, once a week, okay, we got, there's an issue. But to, to document them and track them and to review them, right? To, I found that really helpful at my old agency where it was, all right, we've been, we've been tracking these and we've got copies of, of all these erroneous exclusions you know, group meeting, we're going to talk through them all. There's no names as to who made which error. You can speak up and say that one's mine if you want, but you don't have to. And everyone gets to look at it and talk about what might have been going on that led to the error. And, you know, how can we all learn from this example? I think that's the important part is learning from the previous errors to improve your performance overall, where you don't have to wait for your own error to happen. You can learn from other people's mistakes. That's a really good point, and I, I will share that it was one of my frustrations uh, when I worked for the state lab in in the latent print section. We all were pretty blunt with one another and shared when we made a mistake so that we could share the error with other examiners. I noticed that when I moved to drug chemistry that it was complete opposite. We'd have group meetings, and I would bring up exactly as you described errors that occurred, and that person would sit there and never say anything. They would never jump in. They would never. They would never self-identify. They didn't. In fact, they didn't even want it shared with the group. It was a completely different dynamic. Uh, and I know of agencies out there that are like that. That when there is an error in house. Quality assurance does not want to share it with the rest of the examiners or they're unable to or they've written some rule that they feel that it would be inappropriate to share it with other examiners. And then it, from from my perspective, it makes no sense because you're never afforded the opportunity to learn from that error. It's bizarre, but we all know it's happening in quite a few laboratories. And even more so, I'd encourage the, the community as a whole to to take steps towards a a you know latent print community error repository where we can see uh, we uh. Can, where people can share between agencies uh, of you know instances of error so that again we can all work to improve by looking at what other the mistakes that other people have made not as a oh look at that guy but as acknowledgement of this is something that happens to all of us let's all work together uh, to improve. Uh, again, wonderful idea. But as you know, agencies are so protective about images from their cases and yep. sharing that. That's why actually, that's why we need papers like this, where ground truth is possessed to be able to share examples of these sorts of things coming out, out of research. But you're absolutely right, Eric. That's something that's a recommendation. I think that even the human factors group made a long time ago, uh, that was suggested that we have a repository to share these either actual errors or near misses, you know, sure. something that was caught during verification, but instantly ran into the problems of, yeah, there's no way my agency would ever share these images ever with right. outside our doors. Uh, so one thing I want to pull on a thread just a little bit here, Heidi, one of the recommendations is introduce a policy that includes criteria required to reach an exclusion. 
reading between the lines there, that would mean that if that criteria is not present and assuming that it's not the same source you know, between the latent and the known, the uh, examiner would reach a, an inconclusive decision, correct? Correct. Or a uh, support for different source, which which wasn't you know part of this paper, again, to match what had uh, come from before from the noblest black box. Correct, yes. And, and also earlier in the paper, there was one sample in particular where, and we didn't really touch on it, but the examiner was worried about making an erroneous ID, so then therefore decided to say exclusion. Yes. If there were, and, and you say if they were not comfortable with the risk of making an erroneous ID, one wonders why they did not just select inconclusive rather than swing entirely the other direction to commit an erroneous exclusion. One does wonder that. One does wonder. <laughs> So, it, it, Eric, it comes back to something that we discussed on the previous podcast. Yeah, there is a lack in the community of clarity about exclusion and what it means, and we have yes. seen often a confusion between inconclusive and exclusions. Or I cannot find it; hence, I say it's an exclusion, which does not make any sense, of course. But I noticed through these studies repeatedly that. People are unclear about the term exclusion. Uh, absolutely, uh, I completely agree. And, and even back in the um, in the noblest papers, you know, the authors there were making a similar call for you know clear definitions and specific criteria for exclusion. So it seems though that from this uh, recommendation and from this observation of that examiner, that inconclusive then is can be used strategically as a as a decision to avoid error. Yes, I mean you're you're trading error rate for sensitivity, but that's you know that's a decision you can make operationally at your lab or in your own pers- personal value system. And I think that's you know a wise policy to follow and it's definitely preferable in my mind to say inconclusive rather than make an erroneous exclusion. If you miss an ID and say inconclusive, it's better than missing the ID and saying exclusion. It works well in that sense. But if you take the other case where you run the risk of making a wrong identification and instead of going in favor of the exclusion, you stick to an inconclusive without even disclosing that there is elements that should guide the other way around, you run the other risk. So I I think inconclusive is not always a safe position to be. What we are trying to aiming at is to find the appropriate direction and to express it with the right strength uh, when it, when it is in place. I would be cautious about electing inconclusive as being a safe harbor. I'm, I'm not sure it is. I mean, I can agree that that there are certainly certain comparisons where inconclusive is inappropriate, but you know, specifically with when the criteria is not present when there's essentially no similarities and the criteria for exclusion isn't present and then inconclusive is then this or support for different sources is a the remaining option you know that for me speaks really strongly towards the inclusion of the inconclusive decision in uh, analyzing accuracy data and this kind of relates back to our, our previous discussion in the last episode. I completely agree with these recommendations. And, you know, this is why, from my point of view, it's important to include inconclusive in the calculations of error rates. Because you see it as a viable option resulting from the method. It's a viable conclusion. If I'm hearing you right, Eric, and, I, and as I hear Christoph's point, it depends on how it's used and we don't have good metrics for assigning it appropriately sometimes into the inconclusive category. Right, right. There are situations where inconclusive is the is an, is the appropriate and uh, is a viable conclusion. If only we could always decide when it was and wasn't appropriate. <laughs> that That's which, the problem. It's, which is the big problem. Yeah, I mean, it's often a viable and correct conclusion, but the problem is how do you define ground truth? Right. Exactly. Yep, well, that's it. Well, Heidi and Christoph, thank you guys so much. Again, very much enjoyed this paper, especially all the examples, as you guys can probably tell from how much I talked about all the examples. Just fantastic insight into what the examiners were, were doing and why they um, they made the errors that they did. So thank you guys so much for the paper and for joining us to talk about it. Yeah, a wonderful contribution. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Both of you. Thank you. Really enjoyed this one. Thank you. Thank you, both of you.
All right. So to wrap things up, we'll start with the anagram. Glenn, unsent violin. Were you able to uh, to unscramble this one? I was. Took me a little bit longer than usual. <laughs> I but actually I got this one. I eventually got there. Well, Heidi, yeah, why don't you do it then if you were able to unscramble this one? I did. It, it took me a while too. I didn't get it till towards the end. Tunnel vision. Very good. Yeah. Tunnel vision, yes. Although I will confess, I think I got it because I've been watching WandaVision, so the vision part clicked for me first, <laughs> and then I built tunnel with what was left. <laughs> uh, that's great. I need to start on that show. I haven't started yet. I just oh, barely wow. finished Mandalorian, so I'm kind of behind. Well, good job. All right. You can head over to our website, doubleloopodcast.com, for episodes and links to all the socials. You can reach out to Glenn or I over email, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. And if you're interested, check out evolveforensics.com for webinars that I'm teaching. In fact, one of them that actually made reference to a topic today, which yep. was conflict resolution. I do a webinar on conflict resolution using that Montani paper as a, a source material to share that method for conflict resolution, which a lot of the things we discussed today would be in that webinar. And I have uh, retooled my exclusion class to also put a focus on APHIS technology and how that can help as well. Uh, so if you want inf more information on that, you can reach out to me uh, or email and uh, you'll be able to start seeing some more information about it here uh, as well very soon. You can listen to us on Stitcher, on Spotify, or on SoundCloud. And uh, the opinions expressed are those of the speaker and not necessarily anyone they work for. So with that, thank you guys all for listening and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Try to stay sane. Thanks for having us. Had a great time. Take care, everyone. And uh, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.